Good morning. How's everybody doing today? We're good. My name is Andrew. My name is Andrew, and uh, excited to be with you uh, this morning and to walk through the Book of Ruth with you. Um, first of all, Happy Father's Day, Feliz Dia del Padre. Did I get that? Close? Mm, no. If the Lord has extended grace to you and allowed you to have has allowed you to become a father or a father figure, um, I hope that you will not take that lightly and not be, take that passively, um, that God has called us as husbands and, and fathers to lay down our lives for the sake of our family. And in doing so, we demonstrate the gospel to our family. And I, it's, a, it's a high calling, and I hope that you don't take that lightly or passively. And if you will, we're going to be in chapter 2. We looked at chapter 1 last week, and so just to um, refresh us, or maybe if you weren't here last week, um, kind of give us some context of what's going on uh, in this short um, book that we have in the Old Testament. Uh, so Ruth is a spotlight book, and what I mean by that is in the Old Testament, how we have it, uh, the majority of us probably, uh, how it's uh, formatted, is that we have some fairly chronological uh, information when it, when it comes to Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, uh, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. That's fairly chronological as it tells the story of God's people. Then we get to a spotlight book, which is like Ruth, that doesn't give us new uh, chronological information, doesn't continue the story, but gives us a spotlight of what's already been covered. Uh, and that happens a couple times throughout the Old Testament. And so Ruth is in the time period of the Judges. We look through the book of Judges, and it's a, it's a really tough time. It's a really, um, we see the deterioration of Israel during this time. We read last week in, in a verse in uh, Judges that there was no king, and every man, woman, did what was right in their own eyes. If it felt good, they did it. If they felt like this was fine for them, regardless of what the, the, the laws and what the, the Lord had called his people to do, they did it anyway, because they felt like that, that, that will, that's what was right in their own eyes, and so they did it. Um, we see a lot of that in our, in our society, our cultures today. And so what we see in the time period of the judges is this cycle. Um, Israel, they rebel against the Lord, they rebel against God. And because of that, God brings judgment. Uh, there's consequence for sin, and so there's judgment. And in context of Ruth, there's a famine that takes place. And ironically, because in Bethlehem, where Ruth, uh, where Naomi and this family is from, means house of bread, but because of their rebellion, there's, there's famine, there's ruin. And then we see throughout the book of Judges that people don't really like that. Um, they don't like the destruction. They don't like the ruin. So what happens, we see time and time again, they repent. Uh, they say, Lord, I'm sorry. Uh, we'll, we'll continue to obey you. We'll acknowledge you as the one true God, and then we'll serve you. And so the Lord, for whatever reason, has mercy on them and restores them, restores the fellowship. We see at the end of chapter 1 that God breaks the famine uh, and sends food for his people. Um, but it's, if you look at the book of Judges, it's a cycle. Uh, it's not long before uh, the people of God are restored and redeemed before they rebel again and, and turn from following the Lord. And then they're back in that cycle of, of ruin. And then again they repent and 
God has mercy on them. But then we have the book of Ruth. And what we see in the book of Ruth is just the spotlight of the light of God in the midst of some tough, dark situations. In the first few uh, verses of chapter 1, we see the misery of Naomi, where one, because of their rebellion, there's a famine, but then two, her husband moves them to foreign land, Moab. Moab is a, a culturally pagan society, a perverse and, and really messed up community of people who, who really attack and, and provoke Israel to sin and to worship their false god. So they move there. Um, but then Elimelech dies. Naomi's wife, or Naomi's husband, excuse me, um, dies in the midst of this. So she's left with her two sons. Uh, they stay there. They live there. Their sons um, uh, find wives in Moab. And uh, we looked at last week, Numbers 25, where uh, Moabite women don't really have a great reputation, where we see where they... Uh, entice and seduce these Israelite men to sleep with them and to worship their false god. So they don't have that great reputation. Yet, Naomi's sons found wives in the Moabite women, Ruth and Orpah. Not only that, uh, her sons died. And so in the midst of this attack, this tragedy after tragedy, um, what we saw last week was that God was still working and that God was unfolding uh, his mercies, but Ruth uh, uh, and Naomi was where they were blind to that. Naomi, as they get back, um, they return to Judah, to Bethlehem, and she still, she says that the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. The Almighty has dealt uh, with me uh, very bitterly. And so she's so uh, focused on what's going on in her life that she can't see the mercy, she can't see the hand of God working. And then she even says at the very end of the chapter, she says, I, I went away full, but I've returned empty. Even though there is no famine anymore, even though that God lifted that and made provisions for them to return home, even though that um, Ruth, her daughter-in-law, decided to stay with her, she was blind to all of that, all of, all of the providence of God in the midst of this tragedy. So in chapter 2, um, what we're going to see is that uh, God's mercy and his providence is going to unfold even more and to the point that Naomi actually sees it and sees it unfold in her life. And so before we look at chapter 2, let's pray and ask the Lord to, to be with us and to speak to us today. Father God, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for the opportunity we have to, to come and, and, and hear from you. And I pray that you would give us wisdom and clarity as we walk through this together. Uh, we love you, and we ask all this in your name. Amen. So if you will, follow along with me, and we'll just start in verse 1, and we'll, we'll walk through this together. It says, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. 
Verse 5, it says, Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? He was, he was inquiring, you know, what, who, who is she? What's, what's her story? Is she married? What's going on? And they said, verse 6, And the servant was, that was in charge of the reapers answered, She's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. Verse 7, she said, Please let me glean and, and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. So let's kind of stop for a moment and kind of look at what we just read. First, uh, we've already met Naomi. We've already met Ruth. And then here we've got this new character, Boaz, that, we, that gets brought into the picture. And so right off the bat in verse 1, we see that Naomi had a relative of her husband. So the situation that they're in isn't so, as bleak as she paints the picture out to be. In chapter 1, verse, verse 13, where she talks to her, her daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, she says, look, I don't have anybody to give you as a husband. Like, I, don't, I, I can't do anything for you. If you stay with me, you're going to be just as bitter and miserable. All right. There's, there was an Israelite custom that when uh, uh, a man dies, that uh, a brother or a close relative, anybody who is available, would marry the widow to provide and to, to help uh, continue the family. And so we see ch- right in chapter 2 that it's, it's not as bleak. She doesn't return empty. Um, that there's provision there. But then also we see the kind of character of this man Boaz. One, let me just kind of paint you a picture of who this man is. Boaz, he, he doesn't wear a sweater vest. He doesn't, uh, he doesn't drink anything uh, that's decaf uh, or has the word uh, frap in it. Um, he doesn't own or listen. He's never listened to a Taylor Swift album. Um, kind of give you the idea. He's just a man's man. Um, he doesn't watch the HGTV channel. Um, you know, you fix her up or it's a great show, but he's out there doing it. He's not, he's not at home watching it. He's out there doing it. He doesn't drive a Prius. All right, this is, and no offense to anybody, just, just kidding, um, obviously. Um, but this is, he's, he's a man's man, but he's, he's wealthy. He owns some land. But then we see his character in that, how he greets his employees. He says, he says right here, as, as, as he greets his employees, he says, the Lord be with you. And they answered, they replied, he says, no, the Lord bless you. All right, could you imagine going into work tomorrow and, and your boss coming in and saying that? That'd probably throw you off a little bit, all right? But what, I'm thinking, you know, why is the author telling us this? You've got four chapters to kind of unfold the story of, of, of Ruth and, and how she's redeemed and how the Lord saves her. And you're going to spend time on and worrying about how Boaz greets his employees. And what, you know, what we can conclude on this is that Boaz is such a God-saturated man that the Lord is, is in everything he does. And I think one of the reasons why uh, the author just devotes a couple of verses to this is that he lets us know into the character of who he is. Um, that he's not just, these aren't just religious cliches that he says, but he really is, uh, really is involved in the lives of the people he interacts with every day. He says, let, let the Lord bless you. And then in verse 5, he, he notices this woman, Ruth. 
He says, Then Boaz said to his young man, who, is, who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? So he takes notice something of this woman. And I want to just kind of point out that Ruth, if we think about it, isn't really somebody worth noticing. If you think about her character and, and her reputation, that, you know, she really isn't anybody that is, is worth noticing, much less marrying, as, as far as the, our culture looks at. Boaz kind of flips the script on that in this one passage. You know, she's, if you remember her background, she's a Moabite. She's a foreigner. Uh, she's got all this, these stereotypical um, characteristics about herself. But he notices her because he's not just the typical guy. He has a different spirit. Instead of giving in to the stereotypes of this foreign woman, he sees somebody who was born in the image of God. And I think that's something that, that's a lesson that we can take from. That instead of putting these, these stereotypes on people that are different from us, that we look at people as sons and daughters who are made in the image of God, who, have, who is somebody that the Lord loves. And I think it's incredible that this is in here and how it's laid out in here. And in this first few verses, not only do we see and get introduced to Boaz, we see some characteristics of Ruth. So just in, in verse 2, it says, And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of the grain after him, whose sight I shall find favor. Like, Naomi didn't make her go work. This is something, uh, this is not something that um, Naomi pried her to do. So, look, I'm an old woman. I need you to go provide for me. I need you to go to the, get us some food. Now, th- this is something that Ruth takes the initiative to do for herself. She says, look, I, like, I'm, I'm the outsider here. I understand that, you know, we don't have any way of, of, of making a living on ourselves. Let me, let me go if, if, it, if it's okay. She says, let me go to the field and glean among the ears, so she takes the initiative in the first place. We see some, some character coming out in Ruth. And then also, if you look in verse 7, we see her humility. She goes up to the, whoever's over the reapers, and she goes and says, please let me glean among the sheaves after the reapers. She says, let me glean, let me, let me gather after the reapers come through. So it's right here we see some humility in her. And she, she doesn't, she's not presumptuous. She doesn't seem like she has the right to do this, even though she does. So there's a, it's, there's a mosaic commandment that commands the, the owners and the, of the harvest when they go and reap that they are not to reap all of the corners of the field, that they leave the corners. And also when... After they reap, they're to leave the glean, gleaning for those who are fatherless, for those who are the widow. And so it's a, it's a mosaic commandment. So she has every right to be there. She doesn't even have to ask. She can just go out and get it for herself. But we see the humility that she goes to those in charge and she says, hey, will you please let me glean and gather among the sheaves. And also, the rest of verse 7, we see, um, we see her work ethic. So she takes the initiative. 
she's humble, she's low, she's meek. And then we, we see her worth ethic. She, it says, so she came and she continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. And this, this, this work, it's, it's, it's physical labor. It's not something that's simple to do. And we see right here that she's, she doesn't fit into the, the stereotypical, the typical Moabite woman, that she's somebody of character. And, and Boaz takes notice of that. We keep going. Verse 8 says, Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field, or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping, and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. I think this is... This is incredible that he shows some overwhelmingly gracious and kindness to Ruth, even though he didn't have to. He takes notice. He inquires about her. Then he goes and approaches and says, look, I want to bless you with this food. Get more than you need. Don't worry about anybody. Keep your eyes on the field. Nobody's going to harm you. You don't have to worry about anybody coming up on you. And if you're thirsty, we've got water drawn. Just go to it. And then we get to verse 10. Verse 10, I think this is one of the most important interchanges that we have between Ruth and Boaz up until this point. And it says this, verse 10, Then she fell on her face, bowing down to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? So she understands who she is. She understands the, um, the stereotype. She understands the, the, the poor treatment that she's experienced in her life. And then she sees this kindness, this gratitude being shown to her. And she comes to him and says, why? Why have you noticed me? Why have you found favor? And so for the rest of the time that we have this morning, I just want to uh, look at that question. A couple of questions, actually. Why has Ruth found favor and then also, what does she do about it? What does that lead her to do about the situation that she's in? Verse 10, she says, why have I found favor in your eyes? She falls to the ground and she's, why have you taken notice of me? In verse 11, Boaz begins to answer the question. He says, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and your mother and your native land and have come and you came to the, a people that you did not know. Verse 12 says that the Lord repay you for what you've done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. He says, look, all the things that you've done in the last couple of days, all of that, that was explained to me. I inquired about you, about who you are, and they told me about what you did. They told me about how you could have gone home, but you, you stayed close to Naomi. You were devoted to her. You were devoted to her God. And that how you came and you came and uh, needed to make provisions for you and Naomi. But then also in verse 12, verse 12 is important because it, he recognizes who it is that actually has found favor. He says, let the Lord repay you for what you've done. Lord, I've been, I've been gracious to you, but I'm only the instrument. I'm not the one that has saved you. I'm not the one who has, who has done this. And a lot of times when we come to do 
things for other people. When we go and love and, and serve and minister to people, that's something that we've got to take notice in our own life, that we're not the ones that save people. It's the Lord that saves people. When we see the homeless, when we see the, the despised, the rejected, we don't, we've got to see ourselves because we're the, we're the saved. We're the ones who have been rescued ourselves. And so we can't look at other people when we minister to them and, and see somebody that we've got to go save because it's the Lord that saves. And this is what he does in verse 12. He says, it's the Lord, let the Lord repay you for what you've done. So the question, why has she found favor? He says it in verse 12. He says, Let the Lord repay you for what you've done, a full reward given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So it's, it's her faith right here at the end of verse 12. It's, it's seeking the refuge of the Lord. That's what's brought her favor. That's what led her to cling to Ruth in chapter 1. That's what led her to have the initiative to take care of her. And so that spurred on the kindness of God to show favor in that. And look, uh, she's humble. Us in our culture, we, we, ex- we tend to expect kindness and, and are resentful when we don't get it. But proud people don't say thank you. It's the humble people who are made even more humble by being treated graciously and this 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 concept this teaching of taking refuge is 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 a common teaching if you look at psalm 57 it says be merciful to me O god be merciful to me for in you my soul takes refuge in the shadow of your wings i'll take refuge why did god show mercy to ruth it's because she took refuge in the lord and so God, through Boaz, takes this despised, this defiled Ruth and unites with her and gives her immeasurable blessing because she's, she sought the Lord and she took refuge in him. And what makes this an incredible story is that Ruth is a picture of us. It's a picture of our own, of our own life because we are the rejected. We are the, the despised. We are the sons of disobedience. Elimelech, his family, his, his family is our family. If we think about it. We have left our land of blessing because of our own disobedience. Limelech, his sons, we're dead in our own sin. This is basically a picture of the gospel that I'm more defiled as a person than I even realize I am. I'm more messed up than I realize you're messed up. You're even more messed up than you realize you are. But the beauty of the gospel is that at the same time, you are more loved and more accepted in Christ. We've got to not forget that, that this is the picture. Ruth is a picture of our life. And what we see uh, this far in chapters 1 and chapter 2, we see that Ruth was able to leave the refuge of her father and her mother because she sought refuge in something that was far superior in the Lord. And so coming back to our questions, why did Ruth find favor? It's because of the refuge that she saw under the Lord. But it's also, what did she, the second question, what did she do about it? Well, we already see in chapter 1 that she clung to Ruth. That she, we saw the refuge in the Lord through, through recognizing that her God was the one true God in chapter 1. But then also she demonstrates the love that she's experienced back to Naomi. Look at verse 17 with me. 
says, so she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned. And it was about an epic. I don't really know how to say that, but uh, basically it's about 22 liters. It's a good bit for a day's work. And so she beat it out, and she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw that what she had gleaned, and she also brought it out and gave it to her, the food that was left over. We see that she didn't just use the, the, the favor, the grace for herself, but she extends that to, to Naomi. And I think it's something important that we need to um, understand for our own life, that we're called, God has greatly loved us, so we have been called to greatly love other people. We see this, we see um, throughout church history when the church was faithful and following the Lord, we see some, some fruit of that, and we also see a critical and a skeptical world in that. A couple of things that I, I read this week, um, we have a letter from Emperor uh, Julian, and he was lamenting about the explosive growth of the church, and this is what he said. He says, how can we stop these Galileans? They take care of not only their own poor, but as well as ours. He's like, what, what do we do about them? You see, he saw the love of, that the church had for their own people, and not only their own people, but other people. And they're like, what, what can we do about this? And then another letter um, that was written to uh, the Roman emperor Hadrian. This is incredible. He, says, he was explaining why the church was growing so fast. He says, what can I say about the Christians? They love one another. The widow, her needs are not ignored, and they rescue the orphan from the person who does him violence. So this is basically um, what we see here in Ruth and how the interaction between Boaz and Ruth and Naomi. Basically, we see James one twenty seven in the Old Testament. I don't think I have to read it, but I will. It says, pure religion before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction. So we, what we see here as a picture for us of, of, of God's marvelous love and that Jesus' love was marvelous, that our love for other people should be marvelous too. And we see the work ethic in Ruth and that she didn't do this half-heartedly. She was there all day long, just going through these, the weeds, the leftovers, to get enough food for herself, not only for herself but for her family and for Naomi. And so when it translated to us in our life, basically a principle of loving God and loving, loving other people, that we take the love that God has poured out on us through Jesus, and we take that and love other people. And we can't do this half-heartedly, because the world sees that. The world sees right through that. And it's an incredible picture of James one twenty-seven: pure religion before God and the Father. Visit the fatherless, the widows, and their affliction. I was reading, uh, Russell Moore wrote a book. He, it's called Adopted for Life. And um, this is a little ec- excerpt from the book. I thought it was pretty good. It says, think of how revolutionary it is for a Christian to adopt a young boy with a cleft palate from a region of India where the most people see him as defective. Think about how odd it must seem to the American secularists to see Christians adopting a baby whose body trembles with an addiction to the cocaine that his mother sent through her bloodstream before birth. And then think of the kind of credibility these actions lead to the proclamation of the gospel. 
So what if we as Christians were known once again as a people who take in the orphans and make them beloved sons and daughters? That was incredible. The credibility that our witness to the world has. So I just want to challenge some of our families, not all of them, because I know that, you know this is a calling. But some of our, our young families, some of our singles, maybe, maybe you're not married. Maybe you're an, you're an older family, and your kids are, are grown out of the house. And maybe James 1.27 could be something you've never even thought could be in your life. Maybe James 1.27 could be a way that you live out the gospel in your own life. And so this is something that's dear to my heart. And I just want to share a few things when it comes to foster care and adoption because it's something that my eyes have been uh, opened. And just want to share with you. Um, some of you know that recently uh, my wife and I brought in a three-year-old. And he's, he's the sweetest little fella, let me tell you. But it's, 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 it's not easy for sure. And look, and if, if you're contemplating adoption, if you're contemplating foster care, this is not a hobby, it's a calling. It's a ministry. And look, and if, if this is something about like a photo op for you, if this is something to make your Christmas card look different or interesting, look, that feeling is going to wear off quick. And I, I know a lot of times in, in, in our culture, especially society today, it's, it's trendy to, to get into that and want to pursue that. And so, you know, sometimes we uh, romanticize things. We see Angelina Jolie, and we think, you know, this is going to be incredible. We see movies like The Blind Side and see how, oh, yeah, I think, I, you know, wouldn't it be awesome if I could take in somebody that was homeless and give them a bed and, and, and feed them a meal? And, um, you know, everything's going to be great. That's going to be awesome. And let me tell you, that, that's an incredible calling, but it doesn't work out that way. Uh, I can't promise you that you're going to have a great experience. I can't promise you that if you bring somebody into your family, that they're going to love you for it. Because they don't see it that way. They see being taken from their family. I can't promise you that they're going to be an incredible person and grow up and maybe go to Ole Miss and sit on the bench or maybe go to Mississippi State and do some incredible things. You know, I can't promise that for my own son. But I can promise you if that you show them some marvelous love because God has shown you marvelous love that you can make a difference in somebody's life. And look, let me tell you, this is not for everybody. Um, adopting somebody, bringing in a child from the um, state of Mississippi and fostering, that's not for everybody. But let me tell you, James 1.27 is for everybody. So you might be called to do something in a different way, but you can do something. And maybe this is an opportunity for you to live out the gospel in your own life. And so I want to encourage you to pray through that and ask the Lord if this is something that you can physically do for your own life. And we look back at this question and we say, why has Ruth found favor? We've got to go back and, and understand that it's because she sought refuge in the Lord this is the message of the gospel in the Old Testament. It's the message of the gospel in the New Testament that God will have mercy on anyone who humbles himself and takes refuge in him. And she takes that, leverages that to serve other people in her life. And adoption is one of the most common 
you know, metaphors for how God took us in, that we were the fatherless, and we were transferred into his kingdom, come sons and daughters. And God cares for people that are in need, and we can't just uh, half-heartedly care for people. We've got to go ten toes deep into this. And so we have a, a, this woman who is an outcast. We have a man of God in, in Boaz, and then he sees in this woman somebody who is made in the image of God. says, look, I, I, I've got an opportunity to minister and to reach her. And this is what the people of God are supposed to do. Before we dismiss, we get to the end, and I, I want us to point out and notice the turn that happens in Naomi's life. If you remember in chapter 1, she's bitter. She doesn't see how anything positive is going to come of her circumstances. She says in, in, in chapter 1, like, the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? Naomi means pleasant. Why call me Naomi when well, the Lord is against me? But then some things that happen. It was the Lord who stopped the famine. It was the Lord who brought Ruth uh, to Naomi. It was the Lord who preserved someone for Ruth. And, and even in, in verse 3 of chapter 2, Ruth didn't just happen to come to Boaz's field. It was the Lord working in the small things and the hidden things and plotting for our glory. Verse 14 of chapter 2, Boaz gives Ruth all that she needs for lunch. She works till sundown. We read from 17 to 19 um, that she tells uh, Ruth, or Ruth tells Naomi what happened, uh, what Boaz did for her. And this is what happens in, at the end, towards the end. Verse 20, listen to this. It says, And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed. She doesn't know who it was. But she says, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living and the dead. So she, there's this turn. She says, look, I'm empty. The Lord has come against me. But now the light of his mercy has begun to unfold enough for her to even see it. And that God is good to all who take refuge in him. So let me encourage you this morning to seek him, to seek refuge in him. Don't try to figure it out on, on your own. In the midst of tragedy after tragedy, I don't know what you're going through, but don't try to do it alone. But the Lord is, is with you. The Lord is working things out for you. You've got to trust Him and seek refuge in Him. Let me pray for us. Lord, I pray that I pray that we would be like Ruth, that we would fall on our face before you, that we would confess, Lord, our unworthiness, and we would seek refuge under you. Lord, I pray that you would help us to, to leverage that for the good of others, for the sake of others. Lord, you've been good to us. There's no question about that. There's times in our life that it's hard to see that. But Lord, I pray for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of others, Lord, that your name would be lifted high in our story. Lord, we love you, and it's in your name I pray. Amen.